Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Knife Hour. I can't believe it's been this many episodes. We've been ready for so long, but it's so exciting. And today is no no end to it. It's awesome because today we're talking about uh, VR and documentary, which is an entirely new field, a uh, new way of looking at film, exploring documentary. And we have the chair of Knife's documentary department, Barbara Multer Wellen, to walk us through it. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hi and welcome. I'm Joelle. And I'm Pega. And we're so excited because today we have Barbara Multer Wellen in the studio. She is the chair of documentary at the New York Film Academy's Los Angeles department uh, campus. She's written and produced hundreds of hours of nonfiction television programming and web content. Her work has been seen on HBO, Showtime, PBS, Lifetime, KCET, the Discovery Channel, UPN, Lifetime, Fit TV, TBS, HGTV, Goodness. and TLC. Wow. She's won a 2013 LA Area Emmy for her work on the series television and web series Your Turn to Care, which was also the winner of the 2013 Gracie Award. Uh, Ms. Wilter Wellen has produced two films for the acclaimed PBS documentary series Independent Lens, uh, including Taking the Heat, the first woman firefighter of New York City, a documentary narrated by Susan Sarandon. The first film, Paul Conrad, Drawing Fire, was also selected for the first digital release of Independent Lens Films. She is a former chair of the Documentary Reality Committee at the Producers Guild of America, and we are so excited to have her oh, here with so us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow, listening all to all that, it's like, yeah, I'm here to tell the tale. <laughs> Still here. Yeah. We're so excited to have you here today, uh, especially to talk about virtual reality and documentary. Wow. It's an exciting new field. You just had um, the... Help me out with the name of the organization. Yes, we just had about 25 people from the International Documentary Association, uh, which is headquartered here in L.A., and we do a lot of stuff with them. Uh, and they came to NIFA, and we had a hands-on workshop in virtual reality. Uh, it was a day-long workshop. It was, it was terrific. We had uh, some people from the emblematic group. Uh, we had Cedric Gownlin, who is a senior producer there, uh, and also Ivana Coleman, who's one of their marketing manager, who did the sort of kickoff speech. They really describe, you know, there's, VR is, uh, is so new. There's VR, there's AR, there's 360. There are many different uh, sort of iterations of what virtual reality and 360-degree video are. So the first about hour and a half, they spent really getting down into the fine details of how all these things are different. Uh, and then after that, uh, we had Able Cine, which is a, a big and very prestigious uh, a, a, a rental company for equipment. They came in with three or four different. Um, they are so new that there are. It's kind of like the early days of cinema. Mm -hmm. There are all these different uh, cameras and different theories about the best way to do it. And of course, you know, there's the very cheap cameras that are basically two 180 degree lenses stuck together that create a 360 degree field. Then there are a lot of rigs that put multiple GoPros anywhere from 8 to 14 to more. It's a fascinating yeah. new field. Before yeah. we get too okay, into the VR, sorry. she's so excited about it, which is exactly why I, I invited her here, because she's so passionate about this, and you got me excited about it, which is not something I ever thought I would be interested in. Yeah. You mentioned this feels like the early days of cinema. Absolutely. I want to go back to your early days of cinema. Mm -hmm. Our weird. first question we always ask everyone. <laughs> yes, we have the same first question at every show. Now, when yeah. did you know you were first in love with movies? Wow. You know, I came to, I mean, I really came to it through documentary. I kind of was in love with communication. I actually was a theater major. Wow. Originally. And I was interested in political theater. I did an internship with the San Francisco meme troupe in college. And, you know, other people who really were doing very specifically issue and political oriented theater, which is what I really loved. And then I got out of college and thought, 
oh, well, there isn't a whole lot of that out here, and I probably can't really make that work. And I had an opportunity to do some research on an HBO show. And I had already been kind of experimenting with some, with some film, and I had taken a whole bunch of film classes. Uh, and I just thought this is the perfect medium to talk about things that matter. You know, I always loved movies, but I really fell in love with documentary, particularly when I started working at HBO. I kind of came up as a kid under, under Sheila Nevins. I worked there as a researcher and, a, and a, an associate producer and co-producer. I mean, I worked there for quite a long time uh, on a, a whole bunch of different shows. Your answer is kind yeah. of landmark because we always get uh, early horror. In, yes. in children, like That seems to be everyone's uh, jumping off point. It's like, I saw a scary movie when I was little, and I was fascinated, and I had to know more. You fell on documentary. Now, I was did. it yeah. uh, working at HBO that got you in, or was it like a particular movie? You know, I think it was working at HBO. I got a chance to work with some really wonderful directors, and I thought that, you know, this is a way to, you know, put my interests together, to mm-hmm. put my real interest in political and social issues in, in into something that was challenging and exciting and hard and, you know, artistic and all these different, you know, so many different, there's a performative level to it, you know, from my theater days, you know, all of these things sort of came together in documentary in a way that I never felt like it did anywhere else. I love this because it's yeah. the same thing that happened with Mira Nair. It's uh, yeah. similar to Ava DuVernay's approach, which is mm-hmm. once uh, women started working on film, like actually getting to use their hands in and being involved in the process of yeah. it, that's when they fell in love. It wasn't so much through the watching, but through the doing, it which was I find very doing. It was the talking to people. It was the trying to find, you know, some of the earliest things I did were try and find people to be subjects of documentaries. Mm-hmm. I remember we did a show on mediation between victims and offenders. Wow. And it was my job to, you know, talk to the mediators. Was That was not so hard, but actually, you know, having communication with people who had committed murders and then spoke, spoken to their victims or the relatives of their victims, it was incredibly intense mm-hmm. and, and really very upsetting. Um, but uh, it was fascinating. What was your first yeah. documentary film? My first documentary film? Uh, you know, this is funny. I think the first one I worked on was the very first episode of Real Sex on HBO. HBO. (laughs) Yes, I was a researcher on shows like one through six or something, or one, whatever, however many we did that first season. Yeah, that was my first, uh, yeah, so I had to go in. first dive into (laughs) Yes, it was really interesting, yeah. So, okay, our next question then was, like, what fears (laughs) did you have in approaching your first subjects? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> first of all, that I wouldn't blush. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, kind of like, oh, really? I mean, I'm just kind of, I mean, I don't know that I was so innocent, but I mean, I certainly had not, uh, you know, walked the realm as that some of these people were walking. But you know, I think I've always been really concerned about showing people honestly, you know, and and I'm really aware of the responsibility that you have as a documentary filmmaker to the people that you are portraying. You know, they're handing you their life story. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you know, most of the power, whether you like that or not, whether it wants to be that way. But you're the one who's filming. You're the one who's going to be, you know, editing and making those decisions. So that there's a real responsibility that you have a, a clear understanding with anybody that you interview that this is okay to talk about. Are you there know? clear yeah. 
ethics for um, documentarians and their subjects? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're just instituting a course on law and ethics and documentary that's coming online this next semester. And part of it I'm basing on a media, the Center for Media Studies look into ethics. There's been a lot of, you know, sort of talking to people. Uh, people have been making docs for a long time about, you know, what would you do and what would you not do? Mm-hmm. You know, if someone asks you, I mean, for example, if someone confesses to a crime uh, on on television or it's going to be in a film, you know, they endanger themselves in a certain way. You know, you have to be, we had an experience at HBO, we never actually did anything with this, but we went, we sent a guy who had been an FBI profiler to do an interview with John Wayne Gacy, who was one of serial killer. Uh, This was before he was executed, and we had the tapes, uh, were, were demanded, we had to turn the tapes over to the FBI. You know, he was, I, I never really figured out why. He had been in jail for a long time. He yeah. had been, you know, the whole stuff, all the cases had been adjudicated. Maybe they felt like there were some bodies they hadn't found. You know, but, you know, I realized that, you know, when things go out into the public, it has an impact. Sure, and sometimes that. people don't get it. You know, they, right. they are so happy to talk to you, and they have to understand, you know, what they're getting into. Yeah. Documentaries have been around for so long, but it's True. just recently where we've seen a surge in popularity, mm-hmm. especially among young, I think that's younger true. kids. Yeah. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that there may be a certain, I don't know, I don't want to call it surfeit, you know, or that people are almost tired of fantasy and story. I think that, you know, maybe people want to hear real stories. Mm-hmm. And maybe they want to feel like maybe that's something that I could do. Or there's something that I could learn about how I could change my world, mm-hmm. our world. I hope that's what it is. Yeah. I think that documentaries have also become more sophisticated. I think they've become much more visually uh, interesting. They're using fictional sort of narrative techniques. They're recreations with actors and animation and virtual reality and, you know, all these different technologies and, and techniques. So the documentaries are now no more just, you know, sort of like we used to say, you know, uh, interviews in a plant, you know, behind <laughs> you, you know, or B-roll and, and, and interview clips. You know, that's that's when they used to call it the D word, you know, documentary was, <laughs> oh, they're so boring, you know, the ones they used to show in high school when I was right. in high school, you oh, know, I remember that. black and white 60 millimeter, oh my God, you know, <laughs> not like that anymore. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit, I want to say a little bit on ethics and how, like, for example, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there can be legal ramifications, and we saw that with the Phil Spector mm-hmm. HBO documentary, mm-hmm. uh, where he confessed, but he's still on mic. And I'm oh, wondering. Not Phil Spector, it no. was um, um, Durst, Fred Durst. Fred Durst, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, my bad. Not Fred Durst. Fred Durst is the guy. He's from... the guy from Limp Bizkit. No, I know. Um, <laughs> Some, it's Durst. Richard Durst, Fred, right? Something Durst. No, sorry, sorry, Limp Bizkit. We didn't know. Fred <laughs> Durst. <laughs> His no, last name is Durst. The, um, it's the, 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 the Jinx. The recording the Jinx. Officer, yeah. Yes, uh, the Jinx, yeah. So my, how, okay, so when you have a student in your class, how do you right. walk them through the beginnings of this? Like, how do you kind of make sure, as you're first starting out, that you're not right. crossing these very important lines? Right. Well, I think, first of all, it's transparency. I think you have to have, you know, obviously you need to have a release signed, of course, but you also need to have a really frank discussion with anybody you're going to profile. Mm. 
this is what I want to talk about. Are you, are you okay with that? Is there anything that I need to be sensitive about? Is there anything that, you know, you're uncomfortable discussing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a negotiation too. Why are you uncomfortable discussing it? You know, very rarely is it, you know, a legal issue. That's a very dramatic, uh, you know, rare circumstance. But, you know, there may be something that, that people haven't discussed with their own families at times. Mm -hmm. right. So I think a lot of it is, is just the trust relationship between the filmmaker and the subject. You know, you know, it's not an actor you're hiring who's going to, you know, take off his costume at the end of the day and go home. This is somebody's real life that you're talking about. So that's the first thing, you know, to really establish very clear parameters, you know, so that you're not in a situation where somebody says, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you see it every once in a while, some celeb, you know, flounces <laughs> off the set, you know, on a morning talk show. But, you know, this is different. You're probably going to be with that person for a number of years, right. given how long it takes to, to make most feature documentaries anyway. Yeah. Has there ever been a time yeah. where a subject has not been okay with something that you've recorded, maybe had some regret saying something and asked you to not use it or... Yes. Yes. <laughs> it sounds yes. like it happens a yes. lot. No, not a lot, actually. But I remember one time we were out on the street for a show I worked on years ago. Um, and we filmed all of these answers to questions. And the next day I got into the office and <laughs> this guy, he's been calling. He's just called and called and called. And he wants to know who was the producer. And he's like, calling. He's like he, he had talked about something that he had not confessed to his wife oh. and he was just desperate that we were gonna use this on the air and somehow his wife would see oh <laughs> it's like I was like an associate producer at that I mean I was you know I had no power at all at that point but it was just it was we did not use it I have to say we did okay. not use okay. it but but yeah there have been times where people have said you know I'm not really comfortable talking right. about that and you either have to work it out in a way that it's okay, or you need to step back. Let me ask you yeah. one more question yeah. on um, the subject of like current documentaries. Uh, I'm watching Vice a lot, which is like one of my new favorite yeah. channels. I'm a little bit obsessed with it. And I've noticed that they're taking a lot of people with personalities and a lot of social media power, mm -hmm. who maybe have never done documentary before, right. and giving them these chances. There's a, a comedian, uh, Jamili, who they send to places with extremists, people with extremist views, just to right. talk to people. Do you think it's important for your students to be in front of the camera and hosting if they want to get involved in this new world you of know, documentary? It's interesting. You know, I find that, uh, you know, I don't mean to sound like Methuselah, but millennials are, you know, much more willing to get themselves out there in front of the camera. And many of our students will do uh, a lot of their projects as the on-camera presence. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of say, I'd like you to do both. Okay. I want you to know how to do both forms. I think it's the it's the typical fish out of water, you know? You always want, comedians are great. They know how to ad-lib. They know how to, you know, just get it going on as a conversation. So that makes perfect sense to send somebody out and have them ask real questions about, like, oh, my God, what's this? Yeah. That always works. So I, as I say, but I don't think it's the only modality. And I think if you're really going to work as a producer, you can't depend on that you're going to be the, the on-camera talent every time. Coffee. You need to do, you need to do, know how to do both, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's go into this VR conversation. Okay, yes. I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> um, you were telling me after you had the idea there, uh, you were talking about the films that you had seen. I want to ask you, what was the first film that you saw, was the first documentary film you saw in virtual reality, and how did right. it impact you? Uh, it was uh, one of the New York Times Opdocs, which is a great series, and they've done quite a lot of, of virtual reality. And I think it's called Clouds Over Sidra, and it was about, you know, Syrian refugees. Oh. And it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it was really, and you do feel like you're there. 
you know, you're in the desert, you know, walking with these people away from the only home they've ever known to, you know, who knows what future. Uh, it was very affecting. It was also a little bit disorienting mm. because, you know, in a virtual, in a 360 environment, you can literally look, you know, anywhere you want. And I found that when interviews started, I wasn't necessarily looking oh. where the person talking was, was standing, right? So in the environment. And I would be sort of rushing around. Oh, there, there you are, right? <laughs> that was a little disconcerting. They're getting better at that. Even with titles, you know, in the, I remember there was just one place with titles. Mm. So that if you're looking north and the title is south, you don't <laughs> see it, right? So now they're, you know, spatially placing titles in more places around the environment so you don't miss yeah. it. But, but I, as a sort of te- technical observation, mm-hmm. I realized that things that we really depend on, you're going to look at this now, you really give up in VR. And that's that's both scary and and kind of frightening but uh, exciting and frightening at the same time you know do you feel like yeah. sorry go ahead, go ahead, go ahead do yeah. you feel like anything's jeopardized in VR documentaries like, well is a story just as impactful i don't know yet i mean i think that you know uh Celine Tricard who is the wonderful woman who is a cinematographer and director who's did this uh IDA workshop for us she was the moderator uh and she's done a lot of 3D and, and VR says that she feels that in narrative particularly she doesn't think the the code has been cracked for mm-hmm. VR storytelling it's very complicated it's 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 really mm-hmm. kind of throwing out 100 years of film grammar you know, as, as, as filmmakers, we're able to say, I want a close-up, and then I want to cut to a master, and then I want to cut to an over-the-shoulder shot. You can't do that in VR. First of all, people would be, you know, throwing mm-hmm. up all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> because you've got to be very careful how you put your, you know, how you position and edit so that mm. people don't literally kind of get motion sickness. Right. But it's not, it's giving the controls over to the viewer in a way that filmmakers oh. are not used to. Yeah. They get to decide where they want to look and when they want to look there. And that's a very different concept. So I think we're just, I don't know yet. You know, as I say, I'm both sort of really enthusiastic and, and kind of curious about VR, but I'm also a little afraid of it. I'm a little afraid of giving up that ability to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. That know? control. Yeah, that control. I, I mean, think that yeah. goes back to your earlier comment yeah. about this being a new frontier of film. And I think that while it's challenging, it's kind of the most exciting thing happening right now. Right. And there's been this kind of wave across the Los Angeles campus of VR stuff. The, the gaming department right. just also did a presentation. That's right. Uh, and it was interesting. I sat in the audience for that and to hear them talk about the difference for gaming, which has been in a first-person kind of 360 right. mode uh, at least for the past 25 years, sure. to now filmmaking. And then I thought a little bit about how it's also kind of like theater and where you can, really even though your theater is presented yeah. straight in front of you, typically you're allowed to look anywhere right. and theater right. often breaks the bounds of like just being on the stage. You have yeah. people coming through the mm-hmm. aisles all the time in musicals. Where do you think, what artistic mediums will we have to gravitate toward to try to break this code? Well, I, I don't, you know, it's interesting that you say theater because at one of the IDA events, there were several directors, documentary directors who've been working in VR. And one of them, I remember saying, it's more like directing theater than it is like directing film because mm-hmm. you literally have to either, you know, hide, you know, or you're going to be in a tiny little one panel that you can paint out later that you can replace, 
you really can't move or you can't be anywhere around. So you've got to sort of set up a scene and let it go. Wow. Let it just unfold in front of you. That's really the only way that you can do VR at this point. It's a great way to think about it, like theater. Yeah, but it really is like like theater or something that has its own internal life, right? So something, an event that's already happening, right? I don't think, why do VR for an interview? Who cares, you know? know? (laughs) Right, you know? It doesn't matter. But for something like, you know, a live event, a a, a protest march, or, you know, that's very ungovernable because it's all over the place, but, you know, or some sort of performance, you know, a dance uh, piece. There's a great uh, piece. I cannot remember the name of the filmmaker, forgiving me, but it's called The History of Dance in Cuba. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's just these dancers doing all these Mm -hmm. Cuban-born dances all over Havana, Mm -hmm. right? So that's incredibly, that's an incredible use for it. It's interesting because then you run into the risk of directing Mm -hmm. your subjects. And you you don't want to direct when you want it to be natural and and really be themselves. So it's a fine line, I feel. And it is a fine line. But, you know, are you directing your subjects when you ask them to, you know, walk in the door again because you missed the shot? Right. You know, I know know filmmakers who would never do that. You know, it's they're straight down the line, you know, direct cinema. It happens, you know, Frederick Wiseman trained, you know, you get it, you don't get it, you don't talk to them, you don't interview them, you know, it's all, if you get it and you're in the right place, fine. If you don't, oh well. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the rest of us are, are much more sort of, you know, we think about it, we plan a little more. And if there's a shot where, you know, someone's walking down a hallway and wants to and come in the door and for some reason or other it doesn't work right, you know, you might ask them to do it again. I want to right. ask you if there is someone you think who's doing this really well already. Is there somebody who's VR? getting close to cracking the yeah. code? Uh, yes, this woman, uh, gosh, the woman who did the, the Havana. And also, of course, Noni de la Pena, who's kind of her, her moniker is the godmother of, PR, of a VR. She's the head of the emblematic group, she and a couple of other partners, and she's done these amazing things. I mean, she's now gone into animated VR as well and mm. these 360 room environments. But it's all based on, you know, they call it VR journalism also. One is based on a 911 call of a woman who, in a domestic violence situation, Jesus. which is... And it's it's with animated figures. They only have the audio to work from, but it's it's very disturbing. And you can actually be part of that environment because we didn't even talk about when you get off of just the filmed VR when it's these environments when you're actually like one of the characters in that environment. So you're standing next to, or your virtual your avatar is standing next to this woman who's about to be killed, or there was one uh, a cell phone call a cell phone recording of a kid who admitted that he was gay to his family and was kicked out of the house after being punched and slapped by mm-hmm. one of his relatives. And they also did that in, in animation. Wow. Uh, you know, so there's ways of finding real life and getting you into what it feels like. You know, they did one, too, about Planned Parenthood, you know, and having the experience of trying to get into a Planned Parenthood clinic when people are protesting and... You know, that emotional, really difficult situation, whatever side you're on, you know. So it's that, they call it the, the, the emotion, the uh, emotive connection, mm-hmm. right? Because you're allowed to, you're, it gives you the sense of presence that you're not just watching, you're not a spectator. You're actually taking part in these events, and that's, uh, that's very powerful stuff. Uh, yeah. It sounds harrowing. I think documentary, the goal always seems to be to 
get you to walk around in someone else's shoes yes. and to do it yeah. in a 360 environment yeah. seems to kind of answer that call. I'm right. curious, what stories would you like to see presented That's in virtual really reality? You know, I think that it could help. You know, I don't think we really understand how other people live. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so maybe mm-hmm. to do something where you're actually, you know, I've seen those series of, of pictures of, you know, here's what a family they just it was another one like the bedrooms of did you see that one, one? Yeah. yeah it was just a, a viral thing and, like a family's groceries yes, for the week that's another one like. that they've uh-huh. done but you know it's it's one thing to look at a picture of how someone lives you know in 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 a poor village in Africa but to actually have a day or an experience of well okay you got to walk a mile to the well cuz this one's dried out you know, and then you have to wait and try to get a fire lit and you have to and, you know, you've got a cell phone, but, you know, it's really hard to get it charged and you have to be, you know, all of those things that we have no way of knowing. It's one thing to sort of show it, but to have people experience it, mm-hmm. you know, another one of the women at uh, this workshop was talking about working on a project about someone who had been hidden, a Jew who had been hidden during mm-hmm. World War Two. And trying to do a uh, muse- a traveling museum exhibit where you would be in that little room. Jeez. Wow. I mean, that kind of stuff, just, you know, the hair on your yeah. arms raises to try and be quiet and, you know, hear footsteps. And that's incredible stuff. Yeah. This is fascinating yeah. to me because when virtual reality was first presented to me, it was like a uh, uh, spectacle. Essentially, yeah, right. like, oh, you can stand in. I was in Chicago, and they're like, you can stand on a cliff in LA and overlook the right. city, or uh, you ride the roller coaster, yeah, or these right, other the very, you know, kind of sensory experiences, right. which are a lot of fun. So when you brought to me that there was documentary and that it could have this deep, yeah. lasting impact on an individual, uh, I think that's really exciting. I want to know how you want to incorporate it with your students, if, if that's something you would do, and, and how well, you might do that. Yeah, I and mean, we do have a class going on right now, actually, in virtual reality, uh, for a bunch of different students from documentary, um, from filmmaking, from producing. We actually have, we have a couple of animators there, again, doing this class with Celine. I want them to, you know, they're going to do a couple of pieces. Uh, they're going to produce a couple of short oh, VR so documentaries. Yeah. I, I, I feel like it's a new tool in the toolbox. It's not right for everything. It really isn't. You know, mm-hmm. as I said, uh, if it's just a story that doesn't have a lot of action, that doesn't have a lot of sort of experiential scenes in it, then it's probably not right for that. You know, I mean, there's no point, as I said, in having an interview in a 360 environment. Right. Who cares? You want to look behind it? You know, there's a bunch of plugs behind there. Who cares, right? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. We don't need to reveal that. But, you know, if it's it's correct, if it's the right fit, then I think it can be really exciting. Absolutely. So. Excellent. So what kind of technology? Like, we, we saw a bunch of cameras at the video game one. Right. And they showed, uh, my favorite one was, uh, like, 60 GoPros just yeah. lined up in, like, <laughs> It, guys, it's like a literal, uh, it's like a, a very tight tool belt right. that connects in a solid circle. And it just, <laughs> each little pocket has a GoPro. Right. And that's your 360 camera. Yeah. Which is great, because I know a ton of people who have, like, you know, maybe 10, they can borrow, like, five from a friend. And it seems like a really easy way to go. I've seen people try to rig it up with their cameras, where they're just like, I'll just be very, very steady. Do you have a preferred, like, camera setup? Or was there one yeah. that got you really excited? Yes. Uh, I think that... Uh, the thing about VR and easy are not words that should be in the same sentence. Okay, that's one from everything that I've seen so far. Uh, 
there, the jaunt is the one that really got me excited. What's that? The jaunt is, it's the, there's a jaunt VR, and they have a, a VR uh, channel that you can sign up for and, and see, see some of their stuff. And it, basically, they're producing their own stuff. And Celine actually just did a film about the Amazon and the tree canopy in the Amazon that Ooh. I've seen. The jaunt looks like a 1950s uh, space, you know, like a, like a <laughs> UFO, you know. It's kind of like cylindrical with ribs that go around. And there are 24 different lens cameras in there. Oh. 24, oh. which means there are 24 different SD cards. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Uh, How heavy is it, roughly? Uh, it's not that heavy. Okay. You know, it's about the size of a beach ball, you know. Uh, and it has, I think, image, I think there's a camera on the top and the bottom as well. Uh, so that... That's, I think, really intriguing to me because it's got, you know, the ability to really give you so many, you know, you, then you have to stitch it all together. Mm-hmm. It, there is software that comes when, as part of it, proprietary software that Jaunt has put together that will help you as you're downloading. You know, it'll be like, we don't have SD card number three, you know, don't forget, <laughs> you know, very helpful. which is very helpful because, you know, with 24, that's... Uh, you certainly don't want to miss that one no, panel and no. be like, my whole film. Exactly. I have this blank space. Yes, that would <laughs> be that would be bad so i imagine the post-production process is a lot more complicated harder takes longer yeah oh very much so and i you know i am just a neophyte i mean i'm really just starting to learn about this but uh we went through the whole workflow process in the afternoon with Celine, and you know, first you've got to download everything, of course, mm-hmm. and you're not downloading, you know, one card from each camera. You're downloading anywhere from, you know, two to six to twenty-four to, you know, from each camera. Gives so that's yes, that's that's a lot, you know. Then, of course, you've got to stitch everything together. You know, it's yeah. almost like, think of it like a quilt. And each one of those separate image feeds has to be stitched together into one image. This is for video, you know, for, for live-action yeah. VR. And I'm you know. assuming they're still working in a two-dimensional space. Like, it's just the one flat screen. They don't have, like, a 360 right. monitor set up to see how they're stitching right, it together. Right, right. But, yeah, you're working, uh, yes, Ooh. you were working on a, on a flat screen. And you're working it's hard at, enough. Like, I don't it's, ask for this uh, and at all. It's, it's, uh, it's tough. It's really tough. And then, you know, once the software goes through and does it, you've got to really look because it has a tendency to sort of bend straight lines. And, oh, yeah. you know, if you see, like, the door frame or something and it's right where the two meet, two, two uh, you know, yeah. cameras meet, you know, it gets a little funky. It gets a little bent or it gets, takes a little dip. It's inc- it's very laborious. It takes a lot of work. Then, weird. you know, then there's the editing process, which is once you've done all of that, you know, she was talking about, you know, really the only way to, to edit and not get people sick is to have a point that sort of the point of focus from one shot into the next that there's another point that's going to meet kind of at the same place. It's like dancers twirling, marking yes, a spot on the kinda, wall. Yes, it kind of, yeah. You, you, know, you find that one place so that you don't, you know, lose it completely. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to ask. So can you take shots from different takes? Ah, that's a good question. You may have run past my, okay. my limited <laughs> store of knowledge here. I doubt it i mean right, maybe you can match up perfectly? well yeah you know i know that you can paint you know you can take out a whole panel you know i mean as in you know if you color correct something out or you're painting stuff out 
um, you usually have to paint down out either the the tripod or some part of the camera because you can't it's everything you see everything you can't really hide anything um, or as I say if you're actually going to have the crew there standing in one part that has to be replaced so you would you know take an image of a blank wall or something and just cover it up with that I'm not thinking yeah. about like audio even oh well that audio is really interesting because one of the ways that they're getting people to pay attention at the right place is positional audio right right so if you heard if you know the door slammed over there wouldn't we all look up, over, right we yeah. all look over there so there's a lot of experimentation with you know is it on your right side is it on your left side oh, you know where do i need to look that's so cool and those are sort of cues about us importance happening over there you better you better look over there um, I think music can help with that as well. Uh, but these are all, you know, it's brave new world out there. It really is. So this yeah. transitions into a question I've been asking a lot because I'm curious. I don't like watching movies on my phone. Mm-hmm. With VR, I don't have a lot of choice. I have to it's watch true. It's true. on my phone. And this also kind of removes an aspect of film that I love, which is theatrical. Like right. I love sitting next to people right. and seeing facial reactions. I, I do too. Do you think that this takes away some of that? I do. And I think it's, it's it, in a way it also reminds me of the very earliest days of cinema. You know, Edison never uh, yes. took out, it was Nickelodeons, right? And you yeah. sat there like this and cranked away and it was a one person experience. Interesting. And weird little factoid, but Edison, who it invented or at least was the first to really make money on the Nickelodeons, he never took out a patent for a, a projection system in a theater. So he never had, he never thought of it as a mass audience kind of phenomenon. Um, it, it took other people to invent that. Uh, so now we're sort of at that same place. It's you and your little phone or your little Oculus Rift or your, you know, whatever viewer you choose to use. And there are a bunch of them and they're getting better all the time. I think for this to really catch on, it, mm-hmm. they're going to have to figure out a way to do it in a mass I predict yeah, the IMAX theater. Yeah. Yeah. I think the IMAX yeah. dome will be the first to to conquer that Very possibly. because it's been saying yeah. for a long time. If you, my school took a lot of field trips to the Navy Pier <laughs> IMAX dome where we saw a lot of like space and it was right. super awesome. You literally flying through space and occasionally time to see things. Yeah, I would love to kind of see some of these films, especially some of the films you described, which seem. Um, Oh gosh, just the content heavy, which for me it's always nice to look at like a person's face and be like, we're connecting sure. in this moment over this this very heavy content where if I'm alone in complete darkness, it just seems sad and really difficult. <laughs> I, I remember I mean this you know, showing up my age, but when I was a really little kid, we went to the Montreal Expo and they had this pavilion that had these enormous screens on four walls and I think also on the ceiling. And you walked in, you didn't sit. But with a whole bunch of people, and you could, it was kind of a precursor in a way, because you could look around wherever you wanted to. You weren't just looking in one direction, you yeah. were surrounded by this film experience. And it was like redwoods and beautiful Canadian, you know, forests. And it was amazing, actually. You just felt like you were in that forest. And it would be so, I mean, I guess that's what we're trying to get back to, but on a higher level. Absolutely. I can imagine people sitting in chairs that swivel, uh-huh. right? And then just have like a control and be able to turn oh, your chair. I love and that. it's just a bunch of people turning in the theater going, wow. 
these little, you yeah. know, 360 degrees. Yeah. Oh, we better get some, you know, strong stomachs, you know. <laughs> I mean, they're using it in all sorts of, you know, amusement park rides. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. It, yeah, it's yeah. really exciting. I'm so glad you brought it to me because I, I really want to have this conversation. But <laughs> we're getting close to the end, and I wanted to ask you a couple more questions Please. about yeah. your work. Can you tell yeah. us about what you're currently working on? Oh, I'd love to, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why, thank you for asking. No, uh, Margie Friedman, who's an old friend of mine, and I are co-producing a documentary called Orchestrating Change, which mm-hmm. is about an orchestra that's based in Burlington, Vermont, called the Me Too Orchestra. It's capital M, little e, letter two, number two, orchestra. As in, like, Me Too, I have been diagnosed with a mental illness. It was started by uh, an incredible conductor and musician named Ronald Bronstein, who was who is bipolar. But And it really kind of ruined his career. He'd been to mm. Juilliard. He'd won all these international compete, uh, conducting com- competitions. He started having this massive international career. But he was having issues, manic depressive, as they used to call it. He was finally diagnosed. And really, he was shunned after he made his diagnosis possi- uh, public by the rest of the music community. And he spent mm. many decades kind of, you know, just kind of wandering, trying to, you know out a living. He wound up in Vermont and he eventually met this woman Caroline Whidden who was a career orchestra administrator. They fell in love and got married. And they've started this orchestra that's for people who have been diagnosed with mental illnesses and those who support them. They have two orchestras now, one in Burlington and one in Boston. Mm -hmm. They're starting another one in Portland, uh, in San Diego. Uh, The idea is to have an ensemble in every major city in the United States. Uh Kind of like a men's chorus, right? So that every time they have a a concert, and they give lots of public concerts, they talk about living with mental illness. They talk about, you know, you can't really tell the difference. There's so much stigmatization of people who have been, you know diagnosed and then you know just go away people are afraid because there's you know every time there's some sort of violent oh he's mentally ill that's why mm-hmm. right and people think that every person who's mentally ill is is violent and is dangerous it's so far from the truth you know the statistically people who are mentally ill are so much more likely to be victims than offenders and and they're really marginalized mm-hmm. with these orchestras and it's an open non-audition orchestra anybody can join as long as you'll practice and come to rehearsals uh you can be part of it it gives people a a sense of community Mm -hmm. a sense of belonging so we've been following them for about a year and a half maybe more so we've seen them grow we've gotten all of this on film and on june 25th they're doing a big concert in burlington in this beautiful historic theater there and we're going to be filming both the, the Boston and the Burlington Orchestra's film uh, playing together for the first time. Amazing. So we're very excited. We're very excited about Amazing. that. And where yeah. are you in the process of your film? Uh, we are about, this will just about finish our filming. And then, you know, we'll go into post after that. So if people so, want to yeah. catch some of your work, maybe things that yeah. are already out or things that are about to come out, where should they look for you? Uh, well, there's a website for the film. It's uh, www.orchestrating.com. Uh, change the film.com and I'm not sure what else is around anymore Um, (laughs) look on the independent lens website I think Conrad's still floating around on there and probably the uh, the women firefighter film as well excellent Um, cool so 
This is VR with Barbara Walter Wellen. Thank you so much for joining You're us. You're so this welcome. Was a this was really conversation. <laughs> I also want to thank uh, David Irvine, who was in the chat with us. Thank you for your very nice comments. We really appreciate it. Um, if you guys are in, listening to the show and you want to help us out, you can always uh, give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Hit those five stars in iTunes. It gives us life. It lets our producers know that you're watching, that you're enjoying the content you're seeing. Um, we also love hearing from you guys, comments, uh, guest suggestions, anything you guys want to throw in there. Uh, we've heard from future students, which is always super okay. exciting. Um, so uh, we just want to thank you guys for joining us. We'll be back next Thursday, 4 p.m. with Peter Rayner, who Ooh. is an amazing, amazing film critic. I'm so excited. We're going to talk to him about how film has changed over the length of his career, uh, what trends are popular, mm-hmm. what he likes, what he doesn't like. Peter has a lot of thoughts and a lot of heavy opinions, and he I'm does. really excited to share those with you guys. Uh, so until then, I'm Joelle. And I'm Pega. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you. <laughs> From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.